0: 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you today news from the United States, Peru, Brazil, Myanmar, and a see you in hell from Nazi Germany, uh, one of the worst Nazis, Reinhard Heydrich. In the United States, we've had a lot of news regarding the January 6th attempted coup. Uh, remember, for those of you who, you know, maybe forgot, I guess it's possible that you did. Uh, January 6th was when the United States Congress was validating the Electoral College results uh, that produced the election outcome that, you know, that we had in the United States, uh, that Joe Biden is now the president. On January 6th, there was an attempted coup in the United States uh, in which supporters of Donald Trump and other fascist forces in the country stormed the Capitol in an attempt to stop this count from being held and also possibly to, uh, at, you know, at least kidnap, but possibly kill members of Congress, including uh, then Vice President Mike Pence. So, uh, one of the members of Congress who was in support of this coup, uh, somebody named Mo Brooks, uh, he's from Alabama. Uh, he has finally successfully been served in a lawsuit uh, regarding his involvement in the January 6th coup. This lawsuit involves a bunch of other people uh, also in the government, uh, including Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Now, the allegations of the lawsuit are that these people essentially were in on it, uh, that they were part of the coup attempt. Uh, of course, most of this correspondence calls the coup an insurrection, uh, which I've always maintained is just too clunky of a word. People don't know what it means. It's way too long, blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's the right approach. In any case, um, it was difficult to serve Mo Brooks. He was trying to avoid being served, but he finally successfully was. Uh, this means that finally a majority of the, you know, sitting members of Congress and members of government who were involved in organizing the January 6th coup uh, have been served by this lawsuit. So it can go through and we're going to, Possibly discover a lot more about these events uh, afterwards. The New York Times is reporting that the attempted coup has uh, finally been evaluated fully uh, by several intelligence branches of the United States, uh, but that this report is pretty lackluster currently. Uh, The report shows that federal agencies, you know, this is from the FBI and the CIA to the uh, Capitol Police Department to the Washington, D.C. Municipal Police, uh, they knew about the threats posed by the uh, coming attempted coup. Uh, They knew about correspondence amongst fascist groups. They knew about the rally that Donald Trump and his supporters were going to hold outside of Congress. They knew about what the plans were, um, but that, that they failed to prepare and coordinate about exactly. exactly what this danger meant, uh, exactly the reality of this danger posed uh, to the United States and to the continuation of democracy in this country. Uh, It's a pretty piss-poor account of events, honestly. Uh, It's deeply inadequate and goes way out of its way to avoid any sort of, um, well, holding Donald Trump's feet to the fire or holding any other uh, right-wing members of government responsible for their behavior. Uh, However, again, this is mounting pressure on the right and especially on uh like sitting normative Republicans to recognize uh, that their fellow Republicans were involved in this coup, that they supported it, that they accepted it. As I record this on Wednesday, January 9th, we are still counting uh, election votes uh, in Peru. Uh, Peru is seeing a presidential election between a leftist candidate, Castillo, and a right-wing candidate and the daughter of Peru's most recent dictator. Uh, Her name is Keiko Fujimori. Uh, These election votes are still being tallied. It is extremely close. It's very hard to tell exactly what's going to be happening in Peru. Uh, It's something that we got to pay very close attention to uh, because essentially, no matter who wins in this presidential election, it's relatively likely that there will be some form of political violence uh, committed against the left. You know, if the left wins, uh, then it's possible that security forces will attack them. Uh, and of course, if the left loses, uh, Fujimori has been really making some serious indications that she is willing to use some of the uh, more unsavory and illegal the methods employed by her father and uh, former president and dictator Alberto Fujimori uh, involved in you know a series of disappearances and uh, lots of political violence in that country. Additionally, we have reporting from O Globo, which is a newspaper in Brazil, so it's in Portuguese. Uh, if you need a translation, you'll have to find it somewhere else. Um, that Bolsonaro's former health minister, a man named Pazuelo, um, uh has uh retired. Uh Pazuelo was an ally of Bolsonaro and also a former member of Brazil's army, uh, like you know, the the military branch, the army, uh also a member of it during the former military government in Brazil. And so that's why he was this Bolsonaro ally. Uh he was appointed to the Health Ministry uh during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a very important post, but you know, arguably not one that he was probably uh relishing being saddled with. Uh, and yes, he retired last week. And the reason that this is uh, noteworthy news on uh, a podcast about the right wing uh, is not only that you know he was serving in Bolsonaro's extremely right wing government, but because, uh, as I've reported on uh, for a while now, Bolsonaro is seeing a lot more agitation uh, and uh, you know organizing and protests against him specifically for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and so this health minister uh, was a major part of that Uh, and this health minister upon his resignation uh, not the health ministry but the army of Brazil decided that all records pertaining to his tenure in the health ministry uh, were to be held in secret for 100 years Uh, exactly what it is that they are hiding, uh, from public view. Well, we don't know because it's, uh, it's hidden. It's behind lock and key. Uh, supposedly we won't be able to know for a hundred years. And this coming as, you know, millions and millions of Brazilians and people around the world are agitating against the Bolsonaro government for its denialism, uh, essentially for its attempt to make the COVID-19 pandemic seem like not big enough of a deal to warrant actual, uh, government response, um, Clearly, this is an indication that they think that they have something to hide. Right. Um, I would suspect uh, that these records will be read a lot sooner than the 22nd century, um, but whether or not they'll be read soon enough to uh, produce any kind of justice or criminal case uh, against Bolsonaro or Pazuelo uh, remains to be seen. Finally, in Myanmar, we have reporting from The Guardian that uh, violence, uh, political violence, uh, specifically political violence against journalists, uh, has been continuing and even increasing uh, as the coup, uh, the military government in that country uh, continues to intensify, solidify and really dig in its heels. Uh, There has been increasing violence against journalists and attacks and clashes with anti-government forces, uh, some of which uh, pre-existed the military government's takeover uh, earlier this year, and uh, some of which are sort of new freedom fighters, people trying to restore uh, a really new fledgling democracy in that country. Uh, The coup government has also brought back a lot of military powers and provisions, uh, including press censorship. Uh, and a like, you know, a limited board of government approved uh, members of the press and uh, information sources. So unfortunately, it does not look as if the military government, the right wing military government in Myanmar uh, will be going anywhere anytime soon. And finally, closing out this episode with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right wing figures in history. This week, we've got one of the worst Nazis, possibly the second worst Nazi uh, after Adolf Hitler, uh, Reinhard Heydrich. Uh, Heydrich was born in Germany uh, in 1904. Uh, He was the son of a prominent opera singer, uh, had a relatively well-off middle-class childhood, uh, was relatively successful in school, uh, a prominent athlete. He did face some bullying because of allegations of his family's Jewish ancestry. Uh, Heydrich is, well phenotypically his appearance is the sort of like Aryan ideal he's very tall he's got a strong jaw uh, he looks very masculine Uh, this is the sort of uh, image that Heydrich presented uh, as he became a Nazi but you know more on that later Uh, music was also a very important part of Heydrich's life uh, given of course his father's profession uh, and remained so uh, until his death Heydrich was part of an anti-communist uh, violence push uh, against, uh, you know, attempted communist and socialist organizing after World War II, because, you know, of course, uh, being born in 1904, he was way too young uh, to serve in World War I, uh, unlike most of the other prominent Nazis that I have uh, talked to you about so far. Uh, so Heydrich, as a teenager, was involved in this anti-communist violence. He joined a Freikorps organization, uh, an organization of independent right-wing German paramilitaries uh, attempting to stop uh, the left's power from growing in their country. Uh, After the conclusion of World War I and the end of the German Empire and the uh, establishment of what we now call the Weimar Republic, um, Heydrich joined the Navy. He joined the German Navy uh, and did did fairly well, uh, but was eventually discharged, uh, not for any military behavior, uh, but essentially uh, for lying. (laughs) He was discharged for being engaged to two women at the same time. Uh, he did eventually marry one of those women, uh, and she and her family were big, early Nazi supporters. And so you can guess where uh, Heydrich took his military prowess and training uh, immediately after his discharge from the Navy. Yes, he joined the Nazi party. Uh, he became an important and early subordinate to Heinrich Himmler, who I just talked about, and was essentially tasked uh, with creating the SS's intelligence branch, uh, and he was extremely good at this. Uh, he created a, an effective network of spies and police and, you know, a bunch of intelligence networks and agencies uh, that he remained in charge of until his death. Uh, Heydrich was also part of planning the Night of the Long Knives, and in general, the purge of the... Uh, the SA, uh, one of the branches of the Nazi party uh, that was sort of a rival to Hitler's faction within the party. Uh, Heydrich was a big uh, part of this purge uh, and so he was rewarded handsomely with increasing power in the Nazi party and especially uh, within this increasingly powerful part of it, the SS, uh, where he was essentially second in command. Uh, he was also among the main architects of the Holocaust and I know that I've been saying that about a lot of these Nazis so far but this is the big one. Uh Heydrich is arguably the Nazi responsible for the ideology, the perspective, the the approach, the, bureaucra- the, the bureaucratic approach uh, to the way the Holocaust functioned in Nazi Germany. Uh, he was an attendee of the Wannsee Conference and also a central organizer of Kristallnacht, uh, a precursor to the actual mechanized murder of the Holocaust itself. Additionally, uh, in addition to uh, all of these other things that Heydrich was doing, uh, in 1941, uh, he was appointed to command uh, what was then occupied Czechia, the Czech Republic, uh, especially Prague, uh, which he ruled with an iron fist. Uh, On his first day, uh, he had uh, many, many, many uh, prisoners and uh, political dissidents murdered uh, by the government, uh, earning him the nickname the Hangman. Uh, Heydrich was essentially one of the hardest, uh, most evil, and successful of all of the most prominent Nazis. And it's possible that the reason that you haven't heard about him and the reason that he uh, didn't get to make it to be on trial at Nuremberg uh, was because that da, 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 uh, he actually got killed during the war. Now, uh, he's one of, the, one of the Nazis who uh, the anti-Nazi partisans uh, were able to kill. Uh, The Czech government in exile, they were in exile in London, uh, decided that they needed to kill him uh, because of his extreme hardline approach to governing occupied Prague. Uh, So they organized a plan to kill him, starting pretty much immediately upon his tenure uh, in Prague in 1941. And they sent two commandos uh, to bomb his car uh, as he was on his way to Berlin in 1942. Uh, these two commandos succeeded. Uh, the bomb did go off. Uh, Heydrich did not die immediately. Uh, however, he was severely injured. Uh, he was taken to hospital uh, where surgery was performed successfully on him, um, but he did not receive uh, what were apparently extremely necessary experimental antibiotics. Uh, and so he died of sepsis, uh, that is from es- essentially infection, um, on This Week in History, June 4th, 1942. So, Reinhard Heydrich, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise and the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. Uh, If you found this podcast interesting, educational, useful, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share with friends, family, and comrades. Uh, Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this podcast on. Uh, And if you found it really useful, uh, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. And if you have a question, you know, something you want to check out, something you want to know, uh, I am on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right, I'll talk to you next week.